Well, today, uh, we're talking about money. Woohoo! But it was uh, a beautiful providence this week as two things uh, kind of came to mind that I think are uh, informing the way I'm thinking about the sermon. The first one uh, is a megachurch pastor, like 10,000-person church. I heard him say uh, really de- self-deprecatingly, like, it's not that great. He's like, you know what I dream about at night? having a 60-person church, I know everybody, and I'm involved in their life, because, like, I read Hebrews that says, I'm going to give an account for the people in my church. Like, you know how horrifying that is at 10,000 people? Uh, And I just had a deep sense uh, this week. I feel like I just got to spend a lot of time with you guys. And so, uh, as your pastor, I just feel really thankful that I can know you, uh, most of you, pretty well. And uh, and just hear me say, uh, in so many of us, I see a very significant work of God in your life, that God's not leaving us where we are, but he's taking us further up and further into life with him. And it's just so fun to, to, be, uh, to be around for that. Um, so just, uh, you guys are doing a great job. Uh, the second thing is my mom sent me this article, uh, which is funny, uh, and it, it's called, uh, I'm a pastor and I want you to quit church, or something like that. And uh, I mean, it was just kind of a clickbait thing I think my mom got sucked into. But uh, the article had some stats about kind of common church di- uh, stats. And... You know, one of them is like only 35% of Christians think the Bible is true, uh, or and then and then like 30, uh, 20% of Christians uh, serve in some kind of active capacity. 20% of Christians uh, or give regularly or whatever. And uh, and he was saying like, if you're not in it, don't be in it. Like he's like, leave church if you're not going to do it. And I just had a, a just such a it, the article is so encouraging because when I think of our church family here. Uh, I feel like every, everybody, so many people, the percentage of people who are giving and uh, serving and participating and attending uh, is just a really beautiful, healthy number as I see God kind of knit us together as we're going through this rev- revitalization season. Um, I don't see numbers. I don't know who gives or how much, but the people who count the money do tell me that a lot of you give regularly, and uh, that's a really beautiful thing of where, uh, where your treasure is, where your, your love for God and his church is, um, and that's super encouraging to me. Uh, so as we talk about money, uh, I think there definitely is a call to like, further up, further in, uh, and, and treasuring, treasuring God with our money. Uh, but also, uh, hear me say, uh, I'm, I'm proud of you guys. You guys are doing a great job. And I think um, there's a lot of evidence of God's work in your life and in, in, in the, the percentages of, of givers that we have here. So uh, I, I hope that that is encouraging to you. Talking about money, because Jesus does. He talks about money more than anything else, more than heaven and hell, more than sex, more than marriage, more than capitalism, um, or anything else that Christians, Christians like to uh, espouse as a pseudo, a pseudo a message of Jesus. And counselors will tell you that even uh, more than sex, uh, money ruins marriages. Uh, it's it's like even more than than the, than sex, money is connected to to our hearts. And pastors will tell you, and I can confirm that people will be more likely to come forward and share some egregious, alarming sexual sin than to say, uh, "I struggle with the sin of greed and I need help with my money." Uh, so it's an incredibly crucial topic. Uh, it's really powerful and sensitive. And Jesus talked about it so much, uh, which means that I had a lot of scripture to look at. And um, I've tried really hard to just be still 
and hear from God what, what he would have for us today uh, in, as we talk about this topic. It's a huge topic. We obviously can't hit it all today. And, and just understanding the context that I'm a young pastor. Uh, we're all relatively new at doing life together as a church family. You're still, we're learning to trust each other, learning to trust me, um, try to figure out what's really going on in our church family. So I don't, it's definitely not trying to be a one-stop shop for everything you need to know about money according to Jesus. Uh, we're not going to do a money series, though someday we, we will eventually. So I just want to view today just like a, uh, a foundation, uh, so some foundational, biblical uh, foundation for understanding Jesus' way of, of dealing with and understanding money. Uh, the first foundation is that one of the hardest aspects of talking about money is that almost no one thinks they are rich. No one thinks they're rich because there's this nasty little thing called comparison. And un- unless you're one out of seven billion, there's always someone richer. So uh, there's always someone that has nicer stuff, and we can always find a, a way out of thinking of ourselves as rich. Uh, but here are just a few comparative wealth statistics for you to chew on uh, from the uh, Global Wealth Index. If you made $1,500, not 15000 $1,500 last year, you were in the top 20% of the world's wealthiest people, or highest income earners. The global median income, which is the, the, the value in the list of ev- incomes across the world that's in the middle, so there's 50% lower and 50% higher. The median income is just $1,225 a year. That, that's the middle class of our, of our world, is an annual, annual income of $1,225 a year. 71% of the humans on the earth have $10,000 or less in income and assets and resources. And if you have a dollar or more saved, you have a hobby that requires some kind of equipment, like a basketball or a beach chair, uh, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition, and live in your own home, meaning like you don't like share your home with a bunch of other families. You, you don't have to own it then you are in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. The first foundation, I think, that God has for us as a church, and, and I know none of us are rolling in Bentleys, but that the reality, the facts are, is that we are, we are rich. The, the first blank there is that, is that we are rich, you are rich. And I know not many of us feel that way. I know it's so easy to see all the things that we could do. But this is important because when we read the Bible, when we read Jesus' words, when he talks to the rich, we must hear those words as being to us. Friends, none of us are poor. We got, we got to stop calling ourselves that. Because having to budget or say no to some luxuries, it doesn't make us make us poor. And when we view that way, we miss out on all these opportunities for gratitude. And we, we miss out on all these opportunities uh, that where Scripture is talking to us that we might not catch. When Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he's talking about you and me. When he says, when he tells the parable 
of the rich man who builds bigger barns to store his wealth after a good harvest. And then God enters the parable. It's the only parable where God enters it. And he says, you fools. He's talking to you and me. When Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler and he says, sell everything and follow him, he's speaking to you and me. Now, uh, one of the sweetest uh, realities of being, uh, being here as a pastor is that um, the pastoral epistles have been this like endless treasure chest. They're such short, short, short books. This is First and Second Timothy and Titus. But it's the instructions from Paul to Timothy, a young pastor in Titus, uh, to, on how to be a pastor. It's just like, it, it's like, it's like the feeding the 5,000. Like it just keeps multiplying. It seems endlessly bit deep. So here are Paul's instructions to me as a young pastor. This is in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Mm. Try not to just preach on that. That's not, that, that's a beautiful, beautifully balanced passage because it's not a scathing rebuke. For sure, it's got some do's and don'ts. Charge them not and all that stuff. But if we can embrace the fact that, that just by the numbers, we are rich, And that everything comes from God to be enjoyed by him. This is what I'm saying about that gratitude. If we can embrace that we're rich, that even the, the simple things we have are, are God's gift, then we can, uh, then we can be rece- receptive to Jesus' teaching about money. And we can uh, enjoy what God gives us, but we can also not hope in them. And we can let our hearts be drawn towards that which, is, uh, that which truly matters. That we may take hold of that which is truly life. So that's what we're trying to do this morning. So that's the, that's the first part of the foundation is you're rich. The second foundational reality around money is that just the nature of how our hearts are wired is that we are blind to our greed. This is something that I think scripture shows us is particular. It's special to the sin of greed. Uh, it's, it's the area where we're the most unaware and clueless. Look, on, uh, look at Luke 12:15. Turn there. It's on page 1617 if you're in the Pew Bible. Twelve verse fifteen. Luke twelve verse fifteen, page sixteen seventeen. Jesus is talking. Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. As far as I know, this is the only sin that Jesus tells us to watch out for. He doesn't he doesn't say, Watch out for adultery. He says, Flee sexual immorality, because you know when you're doing that. Watch out for lying. You know when you're lying. Greed, materialism, a focus on money and stuff, it has the ability, like maybe no other sin, no other uh, brokenness, to blind us to our materialism. 
No one's ever confessed to me. You know, I think I'm just really materialistic. I'm just really greedy. I've heard pride. I've heard lust. I've heard anger, apathy, lots of deadly sins that people have, uh, praise God, talked to me about and wanted to work on. But why does greed never show up? It's because when we think of greed, we think of rich people. We think of Scrooge, who's just not paying for Tiny Tim's surgery or whatever. I forget that story, sorry. Uh, we think, I'm too poor to be greedy. Jesus says, watch out for greed. For the sake of our souls, I want us to start with the assumption that all of us are greedy. All of us have blind spots of materialism and greed. None of us are okay in the realm of money, myself definitely included. None of us, I think, probably for a whole life, should ever be settled in how we are with money. Like, I've thought about it, prayed about it, my money's set. I don't have to think about it anymore. It would be like saying, like, I don't have to think about where my heart is. I don't need to think about the state of my heart. And because we're in the kingdom by grace through Jesus, there's no condemnation for us to say, I probably have some blind spots. I probably am blind to some of my materialism and greed. And then to be receptive to our loving Father and how he might lead us out of that and into the good life. So those aren't super fun foundations, but you are rich and you are greedy. <coughs> Second point is that money blinds us. Turning out to our sermon text that Catherine read, Matthew 6, looking in verse 22. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be good and full of light. On to verse 23. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What Jesus is saying, he's giving us an example, is that if you're in a room and there's a light on and your eyes are working, your eyes are able to take in the light and see the room, then you're able to move your body throughout. You, the whole thing works. Like you can, you can see who's there. You can talk appropriately. You can not run into things or fall down. But if your eye isn't working, then even if there's light all around you, your, your body will still be dark. You'll still be running into things and falling down and having problems. It's kind of like the same, same warning. Watch out. Like we can... We can be blind. If we're not vigilant in the realm of materialism, then we're going to be in the dark. We're going to be blind to its effect in our life and we'll bear the consequences in all kinds of ways. Like, yes, in our bodies and also just in, in life, uh, in, in all of life. So here are a couple examples on how the way our, our eye is, the way, the way we see money and see ourselves in light of money affects all of life. Uh, the 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 word for um, eyes are good is it's two words in the Greek is is a really beautifully broad word that means open or generous or or good uh, benevolent and then the the bad the the Greek word for bad uh, there talks about this stinginess and we see that in the Proverbs a lot if you if your eye is bad then you are greedy towards money. And so here are some of the ways that it plays out. So if you're starting with our literal bodies, since that's literally what he says, 
If you're blind to your, if we're blind to our ferocious hope we put in our money and our stuff and our savings and, and then we live in anxiety about it all, we, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the effect that stress and anxiety has on our bodies, what it does to our bodies. It's connected with all kinds of diseases and uh, all kinds of medical issues and stuff like that. And how many of our medical issues come from soul issues playing out in our bodies? We medicate for different uh, mental health stuff, which sometimes is, is good and necessary. Uh, but how, how much of our anxiety isn't a, a medical thing, but a soul thing? Our eyes aren't, our eyes are bad, our eyes are dark, and, and what, what fills our eyes is causing our bodies to have these issues. And here's, here's another one that uh, I, I see a lot in the world, not so, not so much in our church, but a lot in the world, and you can kind of keep it in mind, is materialism. Greed has the ability to get us to choose jobs that we don't like, that we're not good at, that doesn't help, that doesn't help people. And we'll pick jobs because they make us the money that we want. And I see it over and over and over again, is that jobs and the money they bring is just the unnegotiable bottom line. It determines where people live and what their whole life looks like. No question about the significance of the work, its effect on bringing the kingdom, its effect on our relationships, on on how we can exhibit our uh, unique image of God and our giftings, how it affects our lifestyle. You do it because it'll be a level of status or security or comfort. And and what what I I see happening a lot with people I graduated from college with with is that the excitement and the newness of it keeps you going for five to ten years, and then we just kind of get empty inside. That's because our, our eyes were dark to the, what reality is, what really matters. Like, what, Just think about how absurd it would be if someone was like, you know, uh, the, the relationships I have with my neighbors and my church family are more important, so I'm going to like pass on that promotion. I'm not going to move to another city. Or that job's too far away and I'd spend too much time in a car I wouldn't be present with you. So you know, I'm going to pass on X thousands of dollars a year. Like that's, that's just absurd. No one would think about that, but then we bear the consequences in our lives. And what's tricky about this, again, just pointing out the, the blindness of it all, is that, is that we see that greed doesn't show up like, ha, I'm going to jeopardize my marriage for my job because I love money so much. Like no one says that. Greed doesn't say, like, I don't care about the Great Commission or having time to connect with lost people because I just want to make money. It doesn't say, uh, I'm going to go gouge the poor, sh- poor to get rich. Like, no one thinks they're doing that. Even people who actually are doing that don't think they're doing that because we're blind to it. We're blind to these things, and it keeps us from asking the hard question, how does this choice affect my health? my relationships, my marriage, my ability to obey Jesus and abide in his love. And this imagery of our eyes being good or bad, evil or generous, is showing us what we talked about last week, where we're all seeking a kingdom, we're all seeking a good life. It's just a question of which, which kingdom, which good life are we looking? Of course, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, Seek first the good life with God under his rule, but we might chase after the good life of upward mobility or <laughs> impressing people or having perfect children. 
God help us. When I was uh, starting my freshman year at college, I was seeking the kingdom of being a super confident, high-powered doctor. I think I started as a freshman majoring in mechanical engineering with a minor in Spanish and a pre-med focus or something just ridiculous uh, and got the you know snot beat out of me uh, from that. Um, but this vision of a good life, like I would be done, I would arrive, I would uh, achieve the good life when I became a doctor, it shaped my entire life for three years. I structured my life around studying, studied like a ma maniac, it affected my relationships. I literally mem remember not even thinking, but actually saying out loud, man, it'd be so much easier to get good grades if I didn't have all these friends and things to do. And, you know, summers in college were, were geared uh, towards this good life of being a doctor. So I'd pay a lot of money to go on other trips, uh, trips to other countries where I could get surgery experience, you know, b way before uh, other people. Um, and then I would take terrible paying research jobs in chemistry labs when I came back to bolster my resume. The vision I had, the good life I had for my life, the vision of the good life I had for my life, it, it shaped everything. The way my days and nights looked, how I spent my money, what sacrifices I was willing to make. And whenever Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he talks about this, if your eye is good or bad, it's always in the context of money. And so it's, it's him asking us the question, what does your money show that your good life is? What is your good life? What is your if only? If, if only this, then my life would be complete. Which brings us to our last point. Money is a God. Look at verse 24. 1505, if you're in the Pew Bible. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This passage is so loaded because he, under no uncertain terms does he pit money and God against each other. We cannot serve God and money. And you notice this is not about just purely volition or just what we do. It's about our heart. You will hate one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. It's hate and love, devotion and despising. This is very extreme. Why does he do that? Why is Jesus so intense on this point? Well, it's because every single human has needs, and I think money is the one thing that can promise to meet all of them. Every single human has needs. To, to be human is to be dependent and not self-sufficient, to need things, need stuff from outside yourself. When I was growing up in youth group, we called this the God-shaped hole. I think Audio Adrenaline had a song about it. Ecclesiastes says, I love this language. God has planted eternity into the hearts of men. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's this longing for something more than, than just what is imminent. To be human is too long. And that's a mercy that we have that longing there because it's meant to point us to God. And these three main needs that every human has is for comfort and security, approval, and significance. I think 
All of our desires, all of our sin, all of our temptation can be traced back to these three core needs that all humans have. Comfort and security is the kind of combo one. Approval and significance or worth. And that's not bad to want those things. That's how God wired us. He designed us that way to desire these things. And then he offers us himself as a way to satisfy them and meet those needs. But because of our sin, these desires get twisted. We start looking for comfort, approval, and significance in all kinds of dumb places like money. Money is considered a God because it's so closely connected to our core needs, our core heart desires. It's versatile enough to hold them all out to us. So we can get security in money. Anyone fantasize about just writing a check for any problem that comes along? We can use money for approval and affirmation, having clothes and stuff and a lifestyle that people think is cool or will affirm. We use it for significance. One of, one of my sinful daydreams is having millions and millions of dollars to be able to start businesses and build, uh, build buildings and you know, revitalize big rapids and stuff. It's like, oh, but it's kingdom building. It's like, no, that's significance. You feel unimportant and you want a lot of money to make yourself feel important. We can, that's, that's how it gets so sneaky. You can use money for God's stuff. You could say, I want to do God's work. I'm just going to use money instead of the Holy Spirit independence. Now, each of these three, three, three things, security, approval, and significance, is met through the good life with God. <coughs> we see in Jesus' baptism the, the benediction that God says over his life. This is my son, whom I love, and who, with whom I am pleased. And that becomes true of us. And each of those statements address our core needs. And as in Christ, we become God's children. So we are secure. We belong. He's promised to take care of us. In the gospel, he approves of us. I love you. Even in our lowest moments, in our mess, he loves us in Christ. And parents, you know what that's like. We love our kids immovably, even as imperfect, broken parents, because they're ours. How much more so does God approve of us in Christ as his children? And then he's pleased with us. We're significant. He's pleased with us. He's, he says, you're doing a good job. He says that to Jesus before he's done the temptations, he survived the temptations, he's done any miracles before he died on the cross, before he rose. He says, I am pleased with you. This is the good life with God, living into the reality of these three statements. This is the, the God versus money question, is, is where are we going to have our heart satisfied? It's that, it's that divisive. I see this, in, in, again, just in church, so none of us feel, <laughs> feel like we, we can dress up our greed in, in church clothes. Like, like I said, I want to bring the kingdom with, with a huge amount of money. Or an older pastor I spent time with a while ago, like m real dollar figures came into the conversation about every five minutes. You're talking about church planning, and he's just like throwing these numbers all around and talking about how much they gave, this, that, what. It was unbelievable, but it was all for the kingdom. So what do we do? 
Well, turn with me to page 1519, or Matthew 13. Another one of the many, many places that Jesus talked about money. Looking at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Life with God under the rule of God, what the reality is for a Christian, is like a treasure hidden in the field. And a man went in joy, in joy sold everything he has. And let's just like not let this skip over us because it's something we've heard before. Let's put ourselves in this parable. Imagine coming across something. It's kind of, it's kind of impossible to imagine it, it, something in real life that would be this valuable. But imagine being so excited about something that you go home and you're like, baby, we got to sell the house. We got to sell all our clothes and furniture, get rid of your wedding ring, sell your grandma's antique jewelry, get rid of the kids' toys, because I found a treasure that's so much better than all of that. Imagine <laughs> that pitch to your wife, <laughs> you know? But Jesus gives us a clear invitation. We buy the field. What do we do in light of Jesus' teaching on money? We buy the field. We repent of trying to get our needs met for money, and then we take steps to buy the field. To do things with our bodies, with our checkbooks, in the real world that require us, that require us, where there's no other way to make it in life except to be looking, hoping, and valuing the good life with God. This is the, the heart-body loop that we've talked about before, where what we, what's going on in our hearts affects what we do, and what we do with our bodies affects our heart. And this is like a, a powerhouse for Christians, because yes, God comes after our hearts. He wants us to uh, know him in our hearts, but he gives us commands so that we can know him, commands to obey so when our hearts treasure Jesus, we give our money away. And when we give, when we give our hearts grow to treasure Jesus more. This is the, the, the money part of the heart-body power loop. When our hearts treasure Jesus, we give money. But if it was just like, wait till you treasure Jesus and then start giving, then no one would ever give. We could always treasure him more. So if we want to want Jesus, if we want to treasure Jesus, then we, then we give. One of these things we can control, and it's not our heart, but it, it is our checkbooks. Now, if you don't love God or you don't want to love God, don't give. This is not a guilt trip. It's an invitation to fuel your love for God, which is why we talk about it in our gatherings. We, you know, it's not just a, a bucket in the back you can discreetly pass pass by we taught it's part of our worship we're going to do it in a few minutes we didn't do it earlier because there's just no better way there's no direct line to your heart and a better way to cultivate a, a delight in god than giving so here's my stab at being uh reasonable or i guess jesus's stab at being re reasonable it's uh back in luke 16 you don't have to turn there if you don't want to but 
Luke 16, kind of a horrifying passage. Luke 16.10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. The point is start small. We don't have to change the world or become a monk. This is uh, take a step, let it influence your heart, and then take more steps. So I, I pray by the grace of God that this is helpful, but I just want to offer you a vision of what this could look like in, in real life. So we might do some diagnostics uh, about where our hearts are towards money. Do we, do we feel anxious? Do we feel like we don't have enough? Do we see the gap between head and heart? I'm a Christian. Jesus is Lord of my life. I love him more than everything else. But if I can be honest about my heart, that's not true. And then most importantly, do you want to love God more? Do you want to want him and experience the power of his kingdom? And friends, let's give and give generously. Let's put ourselves in a place where we have to look to the kingdom for our hope because nothing else makes sense. And so, so here's... Here, here's what's underlying the, this, this picture. We do this diagnostic, but the truth of life is that you can only trust God by trusting God. There's no way to just theoretically consider trusting God. There's no other way to trust him than actually depending on him and seeing if he comes through for you to see if he is trustworthy. You can only experience God as your loving father who will provide for your needs if you're in a position where you have some needs for him to meet. But of course the problem is that we're all stuck in our all-American orphan way of living where we try not to have any needs or need anyone or have anything. But here's, here's what happened when we, when we take steps. I've seen it happen in my own life to some degree and I've seen it happen in countless other people. So you, you give and you give. You start with the church, prioritizing giving to the church and a lot of you do that already. 10% is kind of the example we start with. If you're already giving 10%, you, you push the limits a, a little bit and to the point where you feel a little foolish. Like, am I being, am I being reckless here? Like, what, what would Mr. Money Mustache say about how, my, how much I'm giving to, to this? And then a bill or a car expense comes up, and, and then God will make a way. It might not be our way, but God will take care of it. He'll show up and you'll be glad. And then what is more is you'll have this, this sweet, concrete example of God's love for you. And it will enable you to trust him more. So you give more. You cut cable to support a church planter. Or you give up coffee for a month to help a single mom with some stuff. You, you start to trust the promise that when Jesus, Jesus says, whatever we give up for the sake of the kingdom, we get back a hundredfold not only in the life to come, but in this life. So we start buying into the kingdom with more and more stuff and see how God shows up. And Jesus says, we will see our hearts start to follow the giving and we'll actually start to want God to treasure him like we want to. It will become more and more true that Jesus is enough and we'll find deep joy in him alone. We'll begin to love God, as the greatest commandment says, with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. 
But what's so empowering but also kind of terrifying is that all this, this heart transformation starts with the nitty-gritty act of giving real dollars and cents. The tangible, disciplined, real-life experience of giving money can tap into this incredible heart transformation that the Holy Spirit does. Listen, don't give because you feel guilty. No amount of giving takes the guilt away. Don't give because you think God is upset. Don't, feel, don't give because you feel like God needs your money. Man, if God needs our money, we should all quit right now because that's a, that's a sad little God. Don't give because it makes you feel important or significant. Give because you want to love God because you want your heart to be transformed. What example do we have of, this, of generosity? Well, God himself. We see the mind-blowing generosity of God in Jesus as he's betrayed, beaten, and crucified for us. My life as a pastor would be so much easier if Jesus gave us a nice, tidy percentage, and I could just say, like, do what he said. We don't have to think about it. Just do, do that number, and we're good. But he doesn't give us a percentage. What does he do instead? He goes to the cross. The cross is the standard. 10% is just kind of an example or a starting point. I know this is heavy. I know there's tons of baggage and horror stories about churches and money. Just know I have no control over any of it, which is super nice. <coughs> Thanks to all the guys that handle that. And I know there's so many ways to explain why you can't or you shouldn't give or how you'd rather give your time instead of your money or or whatever. And listen, there's places to explore or to look at real situations if you want to help with that and exploring what it would look like to be generous. But my prayer is that you wouldn't hear my words. It's not coming from me. It's the word Jesus speaks because he loves us too much to leave us chasing money. He loves us too much to leave us trying to get our hearts satisfied in money where they cannot be. Give with the prayer that God would transform us from anxious <coughs> orphans into beloved, confident children of our good Father. So the ushers come forward to pass the baskets. Let me pray. Father, I praise you for your incredible wisdom and profound design and that you can connect our heart with something as uh, normal and everyday as money. I thank you, Father, for the miracle that heart transformation is and that the freedom that we have from trying to muster up something in our hearts. So as we look at that limit, Father, I pray that you would uh, give us the strength and the courage to, to press into to giving, <coughs> letting our hands off of our stuff, off of our money, so that we could uh, see our hearts treasure you more. Father, would you uh, guide us by the power of your spirit into what it looks like to, to give to the point where we have needs, where we need to see you come through. Father, would you, would you protect us from condemnation? Would you protect, protect us from giving uh, in Christian ways to try to get uh, unchristian stuff? Father, inflame our hearts to love you more. May we be people that, that treasure you above all. In Jesus' name, amen.
you stand and sing with us? I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only be first in my heart. I King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. That one, that lonely. Thanks for being with us uh, this morning. Uh, it was great to worship with you. Just uh, one announcement before 
Uh, we end this Thursday at 6. We're going to have a work night, family work night here at the church, looking a little scruffy out there along Stewart Ave. Uh, and we want to be good neighbors by taking care of this building God has blessed us with. So we'll, church will provide dinner, so we'll eat and we'll work, and it'll be a good time. Uh, 6 o'clock here at the church on Thursday. Um, after you're dismissed, I invite you to stick around for the passing of the peace where we celebrate that the fact we have peace with God, we can also have peace with each other. I want to close uh, with a benediction, which is just a blessing for the road from Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. Christian, go this week knowing that you have been raised up with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. You're dismissed.